Thank you, Jen. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning to talk about our final two Beatitudes. And as we begin, will you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. And Lord, as we ponder these last two Beatitudes, continue to teach us what it means when we pray, thy kingdom come. Well, today, again, we've come to the last of our Beatitudes um, in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to read them again for us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, a few weeks ago, when Jordan introduced the Sermon on the Mount, he mentioned that these few chapters contain some of the most challenging words in scripture, and these last few Beatitudes are no different. These are really challenging words. And so as we consider together these final Beatitudes, I think it's helpful to review a few things that both Jordan and Jen have taught over the last few weeks as context heading into them. And so the first thing I think it's good to remember is that these Beatitudes build on each other. They're not a set of isolated sayings. In fact, the first and the last Beatitude invoke the kingdom of heaven and create sort of a bookend. So verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And enclosed between these two verses, the Beatitudes together form this interlocking picture of kingdom of heaven values that are manifest relationally in the life of God's people through Jesus Christ. And they cast a vision for what it means for us to pray as Jesus will teach in chapter six, thy kingdom come. And so we need to read our final two Beatitudes in the context of those first six. Now, second, in, in speaking these Beatitudes, Jesus encouraged his disciples and us to foster these kingdom qualities in our lives and in our communities. Jordan reminded us that these kingdom qualities have both a spiritual and a social dimension to them that really can't be separated. In ourselves and, and in our communities, these beatitudes are expressions of what it looks like to receive God's reign and to submit to God's reign over the whole of our lives and in all of our relationships. These beatitudes are signs that God's kingdom is among us. A third thing that's helpful to remember is, um, as Jin, noticed, Jin noted for us last week, that, these, that the first four beatitudes are, are about emptying. They describe our utmost dependence on God. And so to review what we've heard thus far over the last few weeks, the kingdom of heaven is marked by a poverty of spirit, those who don't approach the world with aggression or arrogance or thinking that we know it all, but having repented deeply, instead know our lack and know deeply our need for a savior. The kingdom of heaven is also marked by mourning. Those of us who have glimpsed the kingdom of heaven are very aware of the pain and the evil in ourselves, in others, and in the world. And an appropriate response is tears and mourning. The kingdom of heaven is also marked by the meek. And the meek are not weak, Jordan reminded us. The meek or the gentle really are learning to sit at the intersection of conviction and empathy, uprooting apathy, tearing down pride. Meekness is, is conviction and empathy held together. There's a strength to it. 
The kingdom of heaven is also marked by those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, both personally and socially. And this hungering and thirsting is for relationships with God, with self, with others, and all of creation to be integrous, to be just, to be whole, to be righteous. And as Jin mentioned last week, the last, the final four Beatitudes then begin to describe what happens when we, when we own and, and live into these qualities of emptying, of being poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These things cause us to more fully cling to God. And in clinging more fully to God, the last four Beatitudes describe what spills out of us for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So having received God's mercy, we gain eyes to see pain. We grow in compassion and empathy over the hurt of others. Having received the kingdom, the pure in heart grow in, in single-mindedness, in transparency, with nothing hidden. Those qualities of emptying enable us to grow so that our external and inter internal worlds match. What happens on the inside matches what's happening on the outside. And for our final Beatitudes for today, the kingdom of heaven is marked by peacemaking and a righteousness that will probably draw persecution. And these, of course, interlock with all the preceding Beatitudes. Now, as we head into these final two Beatitudes, it is helpful to remind ourselves of the richness of these concepts of peace and righteousness, and to explore a little bit of what these encompassed in Hebrew and Greco-Roman culture as Jesus spoke to his disciples there in Galilee. Now, at base, both of these terms, peace and righteousness, have at their foundation a sense of whole, right relationship. The Hebrew word for peace is, of course, shalom, and embedded in its Old Testament context, shalom is far more than an internal state describing settledness or a lack of anxiety. It's, it's more than the absence of tension or struggle or stress. Peace is instead the presence of wholeness, of harmony, of justice, of righteousness, and of well-being. And that Old Testament term shalom is significantly earthy and this worldly in its context. It includes having all that we need materially on earth. It includes physical and spiritual health. It includes right relationship with and among the created world. We're used to that uh, wonderful old image that comes up at Christmas, that where righteousness and peace exists, the lion lays with the lamb. One scholar writes that peace includes the finest of loving relationships between individuals, within families, among communities, and among nations. Peace means we are settled and centered and at rest with God, with ourselves, with creation as we live together with our communities and that our communities have all that they need. Now, just like peace, righteousness also is a relational word. And sometimes I think we might tend to think of righteousness primarily in a personal ethical sense. So we who are unable to follow God's law are declared righteous through the blood of Jesus. And this is critical. This is foundational. And righteousness also has in its foundation a wholeness of and rightness of relationship that is also very communal. So a few weeks ago, Jordan reminded us that righteousness has been said to be a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And that Genesis 1 and 2 describe what righteous relationships as created by God looks like. So think of the bliss of the Garden of Eden in terms of whole, right relationship with God, with self, with, other, with the other, and with all of creation. 
Now here in the sermon, that Greek term translated as righteousness can also be translated as justice. And these concepts are really deeply interrelated. A righteous person is not only in right relationship with God, but is also one who acts justly in the community. And this too appears over and over in the law and in the prophets. A righteous person has mercy and compassion on the outcast, the oppressed, the weak, and the disenfranchised. And to bring back Jordan's quote from John Stott, John Stott says, we learn from the law and the prophets that righteousness is concerned with seeking humanity's liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, honor in the home and family affairs. Kingdom of heaven righteousness involves every facet of human life and society. So these concepts of peace and righteousness, they're interconnected. Peace and righteousness both involve right relationships with God, with self, with creation, with others. And just as these concepts of peace and righteousness are interconnected, so in these beatitudes are peacemakers and the righteous who are persecuted also connected. When things are not right, when health or wholeness is lacking, when relationships with others or with society or with God are not just, the peacemaker actively steps in. And here has been the word of the week for my conflict avoidant self. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he is not saying, blessed are the ones who for the sake of not causing trouble or avoiding conflict, leave things as they are. The peacemaker, when seeing things are not right, actually disrupts the status quo. The peacemaker is one who in poverty of spirit has tasted the goodness and righteousness of the kingdom of heaven who mourns over the spaces where the goodness of the kingdom of heaven has not been brought to bear, who in meekness holds a deep conviction over where things need to be made right, together with empathy for those of any perspective in a situation might be hurting, and for those who have been mistreated or oppressed in a broken system or a structure. The peacemaker is one who hungers and thirsts for things to be right, for relationships in the home, in the community, and in society to be made whole and good, who has mercy or compassion for the pain of others, who being pure of heart cannot help but move or act out of this internal conviction of what the kingdom could be like in that place of sin and brokenness. And therefore the peacemaker steps towards what is unhealthy or broken or wrong to call it out and thus like Jesus, bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on that which does not reflect wholeness, health, or righteousness, even and especially if that's how it's always been. Recently past, Reverend John Lewis might have called this good trouble. So often when we actively move towards righteousness, conflict, and even persecution, these things will proceed through peace. As Matthew tells the story of Jesus in his gospel, Jesus' peacemaking disrupts the status quo. His teaching and healing in Galilee brings righteousness in the form of physical healing and a declaration of forgiveness outside the religious system. And this raises the hackles of religious leaders. In fact, Jesus at one point is accused of collaborating with Satan. As Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he also disrupts the political status quo. Rome was in power at the time. Political relationships were intimately connected with religious structures and things were tense. And so any discussion of another kingdom would have been considered treasonous. 
And so opposition among political leadership also builds. As Jesus travels through Galilee and Jerusalem over the course of those three years, calling for repentance and ushering in the kingdom of heaven through healing, through feeding the hungry, through forgiveness, through teaching that would have sounded treasonous and disruptive to some. Jesus is arrested and charged and beaten and crucified. And this is the response of sinful and broken people and systems when the kingdom of heaven comes. As we submit to the kingdom of God, entering into peacemaking and seeking righteousness, uprooting might need to happen in ourselves and in our personal relationships and in our communities. We may need to disrupt the status quo to enter into a deeper and truer kingdom of heaven, peace, and righteousness. The kingdom of heaven manifest as poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, more righteousness, mercy, and peacemaking for today, um, for our context and our time and our place, might look like acknowledging years of built-up resentment in a personal relationship and having that difficult conversation with a family member or friend risking the frustration and anger or pushback that could come in response, but for the sake of righteousness and for true peace. Kingdom of heaven peacemaking might look like engaging conversations with coworkers or neighbors about who Jesus is, but also with that bringing a willingness to wrestle with questions or concerns about how maybe organized religion or the church has failed to demonstrate the love and mercy of Jesus to some. Kingdom of heaven peacemaking might look like disrupting the status quo in ourselves. And some of us who've joined in Jin and Vivian's learning groups are doing, are, are doing some of that to better understand race and justice and our responsibility in those dynamics. And those can be challenging conversations. Kingdom of heaven peacemaking might mean listening deeply for the sake of understanding, not for the sake of being understood, but for the sake of understanding conflicting perspectives around an issue or a concern in our communities that have caused significant division, mourning over under misunderstanding, fostering em empathy for the pain that often exists in contentious conversations, recognizing our own poverty of spirit, our own lack in understanding what might be best, finding common places of common ground. And in the midst of deep listening for the sake of righteousness, Peacemaking might mean that we are on the receiving end of contempt or anger, which probably is more born of fear and pain and has very little to do with us. Kingdom of heaven peacemaking might look like caring for the lives of the unborn in ways that also care for mothers and families who find themselves in impossible social and economic and relational situations, upholding human dignity for everyone involved, pushing back on what can be inflammatory rhetoric that tends to show up in some of the more politicized discussions around painful stories. Kingdom of heaven peacemaking might look like drawing attention to injustice using the platforms that God has given. In the civil rights movement, this looked like sit-ins at segregated counters. Today, it's looked like taking a knee before a ball game or engaging in peaceful protest. And the list goes on as we consider what's happening in society today. As we watch political leaders varying responses to everything from the coronavirus to George Floyd's homicide. And as we are heading into an election season that may be just as contentious as it was four years ago, I've been wondering this week if the status quo in our current national climate is actually the divisiveness and the polarization 
and a tendency towards inflammatory rhetoric that really is seen across the political spectrum. And I wonder if peacemaking in our current context means fostering these kingdom of heaven values and with poverty of spirit, with meekness, with, with a hunger for righteousness and mercy and purity of heart, looking for what is just or righteous on all sides of a political or ideological divide. Christians appear across the political spectrum. And I, and I wonder if listening with empathy and compassion and an intent to understand a variety of perspectives and finding some kind of common ground among us might help disrupt the status quo of what seems to be irreconcilable division, not just in society, but I'm afraid also that exists within Christian communities. And this is hard work. This is hard work. And here's the hope. In this work of peacemaking, whether at home or in our communities or in society at large, Jesus is at the center. Verses 11 and 12 of the section on the Beatitudes are less a ninth Beatitude and really more a summary of Jesus' teaching that for the disciples there on the mountain and for Matthew's audience who were reading a generation later really would have been powerful. Jesus says a radical thing to his disciples on that mountain. Remember that to this point, the disciples were really unsure of who Jesus was. He was a good teacher. He was a rabbi um, that they knew they wanted to follow. They must have sensed God in Jesus in profound ways to give up their lives and follow him. And here, for the very first time in the disciples' hearing, Jesus inserts himself boldly into the center of the kingdom of heaven. This would have been radical. The structure of this sentence in Greek literally puts, on account of me, Jesus, in the center of these two sentences in a very particular rhetorical pattern that the hearers would have recognized. It, it follows a prophetic pattern that was pretty common in the Old Testament. When you are insulted, persecuted, and falsely charged, because of me, rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. The prophets suffered the same. Both halves of that statement point like large red arrows to Jesus being at the center of peacemaking and righteousness, regardless of the in-the-moment response from a sinful world and broken people. And with Jesus at the center, we can rejoice and be glad. We can have hope that we're on the right track if some kind of stronger hateful response comes back. For Matthew's readers, this would have also been incredibly encouraging. This was a generation later, um, and they were in the midst of political and religious oppression and persecution and needed the reminder that although they're living um, these kingdom of heaven values and following Jesus and in their social relationships came at a cost, it was for Jesus, but they did so. One of the things that I love about Holy Trinity is our value that Sandy um, led us through at our beginning of intentionally settling and recentering on Jesus. As we've engaged in surveys and focus groups over the years, I love that a sense of peacefulness is part of what many have desired in connecting each week to worship, to engage the word and the table, Lord haste the day, and to be refreshed, to go back into our weeks of service and work and ministry at home and in our communities and in our workplaces. And as someone who loves harmony and peace, what I've been pondering this week and in this season is what it does mean to seek true peace, not the absence of trouble or turmoil, but instead the presence of rightness in relationship with others and in communities. 
to not default into avoiding conflict where things seem counter to the kingdom of God. And this might mean um, a self-examination that, that brings quite a bit of internal turmoil or uprooting of some old patterns of thought. It might mean speaking up to, a, to question a status quo that, that doesn't at base value every human person as imaged in God. It might mean a discerning for wisdom of when and how to speak or to ask a hard question. As I mentioned at the beginning, these are challenging words. They've been challenging for me. Um, and they're words that I think can easily move against the grain of where we find ourselves, um, at least in American society, of, of kind of a polarization of right, left, or conservative, conservative liberal, this, this frame that seems to encompass so much of the media and our lives today um, in the public sphere. And as we face polarization over how to handle anything from the coronavirus to racial injustice, I do think these are timely words. And they are words that demonstrate to me how very much I need Jesus's help in living them. And so with a poverty of spirit and meekness and mourning and a hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, help us as we pray, thy kingdom come.